0: At this time, the children uh, up through grades four are released for Children's Church. You'll meet your teachers right out through those uh, back doors. I think they line up on the side hallway uh, and they um, will be having a great time. We ourselves will be in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn over to John chapter 14. It is probably one of the most off-quoted, with the exception of maybe John 3.16, uh, one of the most off-quoted uh, Bible verses that we ever see. Um, when we think about John 14, verse 6, now, John 14 is the, the beginning of the farewell discourse of Jesus as he begins to explain to his disciples that he will be leaving them. And, and admittedly, they are troubled by this. They're overwhelmed by the thought of Jesus leaving. As a matter of fact, if we look back, uh, again, this is all by way of introduction, when um, in, in verse 14, You know, 31, we hear about the new commandment in chapter 13, you know, about loving them, loving each other, little children, yet as little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he gives them a new commandment, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So in the midst of this, and I think about this, if you're a, a disciple, you hear about this new commandment, but really, you really hear what happened right before the commandment, and you go, wait a minute, you're going someplace that we can't go? Um, we're pretty tight, Jesus. Like, there's, there's no other place that we can go. But you're going to leave us? And in the midst of this, we also see that, you know, in, in verse 36, you know, Simon Peter, who's you know, admittedly troubled by this, says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So in the midst of uh, troubled hearts, you know, Jesus has said, I am going away. You will not be able to follow me. You will not be able to, to go with me. As well as he says that you will also deny me, that Peter will deny me. And so the, the disciples are, are confounded But not only confounded, I mean, they're they're worried, they're concerned that Jesus will now depart from their presence and they won't be with him anymore. So in the midst of this, um, we come to this section of scripture. And I'm only going to read maybe the first seven verses. But think about this. Your hearts are troubled. The very thing that you have placed all of your hope in is now going to be removed from you. Um, you know, we, we've we've seen loss, you know, around us. You know, we've seen deep loss, and and in the midst of loss, you know, the, the emotion that we exhibit is grief. So what do you do? What do you do when you're just overwhelmed by grief and loss? What do you do when Or maybe you haven't lost it yet, but but you know it's going to happen, that there's this inevitable loss that is pending upon you. And you can't imagine living without this thing, or more importantly, this person. And it's overwhelming to think about that person departing from your life or departing from your presence. What do you do? Well, we find this in John 14 because in the midst of this, Jesus says these words to us and I I think that they are very hopeful and helpful to us, those of us who are about to or have suffered loss. Um, So, hear the word of the Lord. John 14, verses one through six. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So these words, these particular words in John 14 are some of the most comforting words uh, ever spoken. And and even as I go to people who are struggling with or near death, oftentimes I will go to this passage because it's a comforting passage to know that Jesus will not leave them. He will not forget about them, but he actually goes and prepares a place for them and will come back for them. And that within the Father's house are many rooms. We think about this. um, There was actually a, um, and, and, and there's so much comfort There's so much comfort in the midst of these words that there was a a Puritan preacher named Henry Venn. And Henry Venn, who was a preacher, he was dying, and in his biography it tells us that that when he read these words about the father's house and that the the prospect in the midst of his dying days made him so high-spirited and jubilant that his doctor said that his joy at dying kept him alive a further month. He got so excited about heaven that he actually rebounded in this world thinking about what it would look like to be in heaven. He rebounded for a month. We derive great comfort from the fact that Jesus is coming to take us to be with him. Because, you know, Thomas is saying, you, you are going away, but what Jesus says to us, and again, we, we need to understand this, that in the upper room, there has been much, you know, They're they're, they're confounded. They're not understanding what's going on. But it says this, that I will be with you and I do not want your hearts to be troubled. And Brothers and sisters, I I mean, I I know a lot of you and I know that there are many, many times throughout the week, throughout the day, throughout the hour where your hearts are troubled. So what do we do with troubled hearts? Jesus actually says, believe in God, believe also in God in me. So he actually asks us in the midst of our troubled hearts to to think about and to contemplate and to meditate upon him, who he is, what God has done and what Jesus has done at the father's command. All that the Father has done for us, all that Jesus has done for us, in the midst of having troubled hearts, Jesus says, believe in God, but also believe in me. And it's not just believe with our minds, but it's trust with our hearts. Like, to believe in such a way that we actually put our faith in him to trust him, to rely upon him, to, to really just be connected to him. In other words, we use that term, and we'll see it in John 15, it's called abiding in Christ, and we'll get to that in just a few weeks. What does it mean for us to be connected and to be thinking and pondering rather than you know, being distracted? You know, think about this. I mean, oftentimes in the midst of trouble, in the midst of difficulty, um, we move to something just to distract our minds, to distract us from the inevitability of loss or pain or suffering or grief. And that distraction is not actually helping us, but it's just sort of putting aside that which um, is difficult. um, Let me um, quote for you Tony Renke, where he says this, every um, generation of the church faces its own unique struggle to focus on God and on the things not seen. The struggle is real, whether it is with the latest digital technology or the ancient household idol. We can easily become distracted. He says this, when I grow bored with Christ, I become bored with life. And when that happens, I often turn to my phone for a new consumable digital thrill. It is my default habit to become habituated to an iPhone or is to implicitly treat the world as available to me and at my disposal, to constitute the world at hand for me and to be selected, scaled, scanned, tapped, and enjoyed. In this digital age, in the consumerist age, they merge together and our screens offer us everything we can see or desire, even anonymous compulsions and lurid fantasies. But do you know what they do not offer us? Do What they do not solve for us? They do not solve the ache of our soul. They do not build our faith when we become distracted by the things of the world. I mean, and by the way, I'm just preaching to myself here too, Okay. I mean, think about this. I, I, I think about the, the Psalm 119 where it says, turn my eyes, Psalm, Psalm 119 verse 37, where it says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. I mean, I think that might be, at least for me, it's, it's the verse of this generation that we become so easily distracted And we cannot concentrate. And then the world allures us into other things. I mean, prior to that verse, in verse 36, it says, incline my heart. Meaning, Lord, when I pray to you, incline my heart. Give my heart this um, disposition uh, to your testimonies, to your laws, to your precepts, to your ways, and not to selfish gain. But again, turn my eyes from these worthless things and give me life in your ways. Let me think about this. Brothers and sisters, listen, the God of the universe is speaking to you through his word. He is urging you to take heart and he is giving the prescription for your restless, faithless soul. Are you worried? Are you overwhelmed by life? Jesus is speaking to you right now and giving you what you need. He's giving you the right medicine at the right time. In the right dosage, so that you will feel the healing balm of the gospel in your souls. And and what I'm telling you is that we often become very distracted. I mean, um, I love the um, the movie Up. I mean, some of you guys like that movie, right? I mean, that's one of the movies that I can quote and feel pretty good about. Like, uh, and and, and, but I love the golden retriever, uh, Doug because, you know, and, and the other dogs in it, because what, what happens is, uh, especially the evil dogs, the moment they, they, he always says, squirrel, and what do they do? They always look for the squirrel, you know, and then they run into something or something like that. Brother, I think that's who we are. I think that's who we are, I mean, and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and I think, you know, the world, Satan, and the flesh all tempt us away from that. We actually sit down to read our Bibles. We sit down to read our Bibles and realize, oh, my coffee cup is empty, and then we go and get another cup of coffee, and then the phone rings, and then we pick up the phone, and then we check, we're on our phone, so we check the email. And then we check our email, we get a text. And then we have a text string. And then all of a sudden we think about, oh man, I need to go to the restroom. I just drank all this coffee. So you go to the restroom. And you're like, man, the day's getting away from me. When am I, when am I gonna have time to actually read my Bible? You know, any of this ever happen to any of you? You know, that's the distractions of the world. And we need the gospel. We need to implant the gospel and blaze it upon our hearts so that we know, we know that God is for us, that he is with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that we are loved by the Father, that we are forgiven. It makes such a difference when you live your life in light of the forgiveness of Jesus. Because then when you are wronged, and you will be, you're gonna be wronged every day, right? Every day, not in all relationships, but most, you're gonna be wronged. Some driver's gonna wrong you, some other person's gonna wrong you, your spouse is gonna wrong you, your children wrong you all the time. You know that, right? I mean, all of those things. But if you live in light of the forgiveness of Jesus, then you can then extend forgiveness, which you have received. But you can't do that when, when you're not like, immersed within the gospel, within the good news of the forgiveness of Jesus. Now, what Jesus says here is a wonderful thing as well. When he says in, you know, in verse two, he says, um, let me just read it because we're not going over too many verses. In my father's house are many rooms. If, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, this idea of place This this is a wonderful thought for us because even when we look at the Old Testament, we notice that in the beginning of Genesis, we find that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Like, who's the first homeless couple? It's Adam and Eve, expelled from the garden. They have no home to go to. And when Cain actually murders his brother, Cain becomes a wanderer on the earth. So this wandering homelessness that we see is sort of a curse of sin, And even in when they're building the Tower of Babel, they build the Tower of Babel thinking that they're like gods, and God, you know, disorients them, you know, and then disperses them and mixes up their languages, and so the people are scattered, and in some sense, they become homeless, right? Scattered, wanderers. We see this in the book of Genesis. Well, in the same way, we are also wandering, and every single one of us is longing for a place to be, longing for home. Longing for home. I was blessed um, to grow up in the the same address for for 18 years of my life. And I remember as I went away to college uh, to James Madison University my freshman year, I remember uh, it was probably October and it was the first time I was able to go home. And I remember I was bouncing off the walls waiting for the car to, to give me a ride home because I was so excited because I got to go home. Because I was very blessed. I was very blessed because my mom and dad loved me and they had made our It wasn't a perfect home. I mean, it's, it's, it's like any family, it's dysfunctional. By the way, we're the family of God. We're all dysfunctional. Look around, look in the mirror. That's why we're here, right? You know, we're all dysfunctional, but it was home. It was a place for me to be. And I didn't have to perform. You know, I didn't have to perform. All I had to do was go home and eat whatever I wanted because my mama was happy to have her oldest son home. I remember I got home and it was like milk gravy and pork chops and whatever I wanted. It was glorious. Now, in the same way, I think all of us are longing for a place to be, a place to belong. Now, in, in two ways, we see this here. In one way, we see that there's the promise of heaven. There's the promise of our eternal home that we have that we look forward to, when we will enter into this fellowship with all the believers, when the, when the saints triumphant will be together and we will worship and we will sing and it will be glorious. As a matter of fact, I mean, I think even when I pray this morning that this will be a foretaste of what heaven is and this is just an appetizer, just like the communion table is an appetizer for the great wedding feast of the Lamb, when we will be together in glory and it will be wonderful. But also, there's this idea that this side of heaven, the home for the people of God, for the family of God, is the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, if you're here, then you belong. If you have trusted and believed in Jesus, then you have a a place here, and you are an essential part of the family of God. And I'm here to tell you that the world right now is a world, is a place of loneliness and weariness, and people are looking, looking for a place to belong. That's why, I mean, CrossFit gyms, right? I mean, CrossFit gyms, people go to CrossFit gyms because it becomes like their family, their third place. You know, people used to go, you know, to bars and pubs and, you know, civic organizations. And, and sometimes they would go to the church, but the church is God's institution to, to be a place where the family of God belong. I think there's this, um, not that I want you to, I just think the song uh, is just so, um, uh, it, it just, there's this yearning within our soul. It's the, um, it's the song from the sitcom, the situation comedy back in the 80s called Cheers. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about? And this bar essentially becomes the family for these people. Or, you know, like the, the the mailman who knows too much or maybe nothing at all, you know, comes in and he comes in and everybody knows his name and he gets to sit there and and the pastor is really the bartender, you know, and it's Woody Harrelson and all that kind of stuff and or Ted Danson or, or whatever. I mean, it's dysfunctional, it's broken, but there's this sense in which what made the show really, really um, sort of Uh, I think, popular was not the acting. It was this sense of, man, we long for a place where we're known and where we belong. The church is meant to be that way. You know, Henry, uh, or um, Herman Bovink, who I've been reading just a little bit lately, says this, whoever isolates himself from the church, i.e. from Christianity as a whole, from the history of dogma in its entirety, loses the truth of the Christian faith. That person becomes a branch that is torn from the tree and shrivels, an organ that is separated from the body and therefore doomed to die. Only within the communion of the saints can the length and the breadth, the depth, and the height of the love of Christ be comprehended. I mean, so when you come in on, on Sunday morning and we sing a song, and, and all of a sudden you, you you begin to think about all that God has done for us. All that he has done and will do. I mean, when you think about, you know, praise the Lord, the Almighty, or, you know, when we we sing, um, you know, later on, you know, or even living hope. I mean, as we come in, like, we weren't necessarily thinking about those songs as we walked in the door, right? But when we come assembled as the people of God and you hear the throng of people singing and you get caught up in the, in the moment of worship and you're singing words that just you know magnify and glorify the Father, there's something that the Spirit does within your soul to lift you up and to build your faith and to encourage you in such a way that you're like, yes, I believe and I love him more and more. That's the family of God. That's, that's what, you know, there should be a longing every week to assemble, to be known, to be loved. It's the beauty of this place. Now, we get to this idea of what Jesus says um, when he says, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he, when he comes to this, we, um, we think about What Jesus says, I am the way. Let me break it up into three parts, the way, the truth, and the life. When he says, I am the way, he says, um, he's not saying to follow me along a path that I'm leading, right? But he's saying rather, I am the path. I am the pathway forward. You see, uh, a way is the path between a starting point and an ending point. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the pathway You trust and believe in me and I will bring you from the beginning to the end. I will bring you into glory. I will reconcile you, uh, you sinless or you sinful people. Once called the enemies of God in Romans 5, but now through the pathway of Christ, we now become adopted children in his family. Think about that for a second. Enemies of God in Romans 5, but in Galatians 3, we are the children of God. And it's through the way of Jesus. I am the way. When we think about this, that only Jesus, as God's sinless son, could atone for sin. Humble ourselves, seeking pardon and surrender our claims to self-rule. The very acts that sinful mankind refuse to do, man, just in, in terms of this, man hates the message that he cannot save himself. When people hear this, they go, man, Christianity is way too exclusive. You just... This is this is wrong. It seems bigoted. It seems small-minded, and that's because they want to save themselves. But there is no salvation outside the name of Jesus. You know the um, oftentimes uh, there's there's a story uh, of a pastor, PCA pastor, Skip Ryan. Skip Ryan, uh, before he became a pastor, uh, worked in the um, uh, that I think it was. Um, he was like working in the state affairs office, the department of defense. Uh, And at at the time he uh, had an appointment uh, in the white house. And in going to the white house, uh, he was in this room that was across from the oval office. And as he left his meeting, one of the other individuals who was there, who worked in the white house said, Hey, skip, do you want to see the oval office? The president isn't in town right now. He's far away. Otherwise you couldn't go in there, but would you like to go in? And he said, yeah, I want to go see the oval office. And so, you know, he was led into the Oval Office by his friend who had access and was able to get into the Oval Office. And as he sat there and he thought about the Oval Office, he said, this place is amazing. Think about all that has happened in this Oval Office, all the decisions that were made, all of the, the fretting, all of all these laws and bills that were signed here in this Oval Office. And to see the president's desk and, and to know that he is now standing in this sort of hallowed ground. And as he came away, he said, you know, I wouldn't have access to the Oval Office except that my friend had clearance to get me in and permission. He said, why do I think it's any different with heaven? The person who gives me clearance, the person who escorts me into heaven, his name is Jesus. And certainly the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who sits enthroned above all things I need a really high clearance, much higher than getting into the Oval Office, because heaven is far greater. It makes sense that I would need somebody to be a way for me to get into heaven. That's true about who Jesus is. Now, he he not only says that he is the way, but he says that he is the truth. And I think that we have a, a difficult time today when we think about, you know, false truth. We think about, you know, people who are, you know, sending truth that is, is twisted and distorted. Um, I mean, how, how many of us, when we open up a website or open up the newspaper, go like, is this true? Is this fake news? Is this being embellished? Is this hyperbole? Do I believe this? What about the, the presupposition? I mean, we didn't used to be like that, right? But today it is. And I think that there's this tendency for us also to lift up the Bible and have the same sort of cynicism regarding it. Now, the great, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this um, regarding the the, the great plight of mankind's sin and the ignorance of God and the blindness to to God's truth. He says this that they, meaning the people around us, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. So there's this propensity for us to not believe the gospel, to trust the gospel, to believe that everything that is written within this word is infallible and inerrant. There is nothing random or false within your Bibles. And the truth is, is really emblematic of who Jesus is. He says, I'm not going to show you the truth, but rather he says, I am the truth. You see, everything, and, and we get this mixed up sometimes. I um, mean, some of you have, um, how many of you guys have your Bibles, um, the words of Christ written in red? Right? Okay, I and mean, that's fine, you know, for what it's worth. But do you know that every word in your Bible, red or black, is written by Jesus? It's the whole thing. Now some people will say, I only want to believe the red words. I'm here to tell you, Jesus wrote Genesis 1-1 all the way through to the end of Revelation. It's all his, it's all true. He is the truth and he has revealed the truth to us for our benefit so that we might believe. Again, why does John write what he writes in John chapter, the Gospel of John? He writes it, I'll just um, go there. John chapter 20, verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now Jesus said this as well in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The truth that I'm giving you will not pass away. Everything else will pass away, but not the truth I give you. He also says, so Jesus said to the Jews in um, John chapter eight, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what do we become free from? What does the truth unlock for us? The truth unlocks this cage of, that we're trapped in because of sin and death and our our own wisdom you know the truth of Christ the truth that is Christ opens that for all of us brothers and sisters do you believe that? do we believe it enough to actually pour ourselves into it? now um, how do we know what's true and what's not true? like how do we how do we get to know that? like I'll use this example Uh, when somebody um, is is a really gifted um, uh, sort of I'm working for the FBI, determining what is counterfeit. You know, like when, when dollar bills and not have dollar bills, but hundred dollar bills are counterfeit. How do they really understand what is true? They study what is always true. They memorize, they perfect, and they, they have in their mind exactly what a hundred dollar bill looks like. And they've studied all of its features so that when there is an error, and sometimes those errors are really, really subtle, When they see that error, they immediately know that is a counterfeit. Now for you and for me, how do we understand what is counterfeit? It is by knowing the truth of God's word, by steeping ourselves within the word of God, knowing it so well that when someone brings a counterfeit to us or even uses the word of God, like Satan did for Jesus when he's in the wilderness, that we can recognize it and we can say, no, that's false, so we need to pour ourselves into the truth, steep ourselves into the truth so that we know what is in error. And then lastly, he says, the life. The life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says this about this life. And in, in John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, he says, the thief comes only to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, in the midst of that, what he's saying is anybody else is seeking to destroy you, to use you, to abuse you, but I have come that they may have life, and not only have life, but it would be abundant life, overflowing life, where it's a life of love that overflows into other people. That's the kind of life we want, right? This eternal, abundant life in John chapter one, verse four, it says you know that, that in him was life, meaning in him Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men, and in the midst of that, we, we want this life to be abundant. I mean if I were to ask you i 'm like, who wants an abundant life? I would hope everybody would like to stand up, raise your hand unless you 're asleep or something like that, or you 're distracted. Anyway, you should laugh at that, but it's not that funny, I guess. You know, anyway, you know but this abundant life that we, we are called to, like we see this. Let me, let me just um, just brief excursus. Um, yesterday was a sweet day and a hard day in the life of our church. You know, John Harvitt's uh, memorial service um, talked about a life that was abundant. A life that was abundant. I mean, when the guys got up to do eulogies, A couple of the guys were like, I didn't know Jesus until I got to know John. And John was the conduit for me to have life in Christ. It was a a day mingled with tears. It was a, a day also full of joy as we sang and the promises that we have. And the life that is promised to us in Christ is a life that is eternal. So even though, you know, John's not with us anymore. We look forward to the day in eternity when we will sing the King of Kings song with him and we will sing it like we've never sung it before and it will be joyful and it will be glorious and that is the life that Jesus promises. He goes, I am the way that gets you there. I am the truth that allows you to determine the falsehood and I am the life that will manifest itself in abundance and that abundant life not only blesses the person, but the abundant life, and this was so apparent yesterday, the abundant life that we have in Christ is a blessing to everyone we come in contact with. In a sense, we become the light of the world that God has called us to. This abundant, overflowing life because of what Jesus offers in himself. You know, I, um, I think about this, that Jesus said these words as I'm, as I'm concluding here. When Jesus says, I am the way, he was saying it as one who would shortly hang impotent on the cross. When he says, I am the truth, when the lies of evil people were about to enjoy a spectacular triumph. And he said, I am the life when within a matter of hours, his corpse would be placed in a tomb. How could he say these things? How could he say these three things? It's because he knew what was about to happen in terms of the resurrection. He would rise from the grave and multitudes would believe in him and these people, these people who would follow him and believe in him and trust in him and have the abundant life. In Acts chapter 19, do you know what they're called? They're called people of of the way. They're not Mandalorians, okay? But rather, they're people of the way who would trust and believe in Jesus. And so the Jews were constantly saying, these people of the way, these people of the way, and you know what they would say? It was like, yes, we are people of the way, the truth, and the life. And many more, and we will shout from the rooftops all that Jesus has done for us. When we think about um, him being the way, the truth, and the life, preparing a, a place um, in, our, in his father's house. Now, it's interesting when we think about preparing a place in his father's house. It's not because the house is disheveled. It's not because the house is unkept. But rather, he was preparing himself so that he might be the propitiation for our sins. So that he might die, so that he might become our substitute and usher us into Our Father's house. It's not like it was a mess. He was talking about himself and the cross. And what he talks about is also in front of us. When he talks about this bread, this bread represents his body broken for sins. This cup represents the new covenant in his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews chapter nine, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And he says, as often as you take this, as often as you have this meal, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And when he comes again, he will take us to our father's house. Prepared for by him, some of the sweetest, most generous promises that have ever been made within all of the gospels is that you have a place to belong a place that you were meant to be. Now this side of heaven, you were meant to be in communion with a local body, with the church. You were meant to belong to the family of God so that the family of God can encourage and help and sustain you in the midst of the trials and the joys of this life. Brothers and sisters, this is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church, but it is the table of the Lord. And he invites all those who trust and believe in him. They are welcome at this table. If you do not trust and believe in Jesus, then I would ask that you would see one of our elders up here today and said, I'm not sure what I believe. They can help you. They can help explain the gospel to you. And we would ask that you would not partake of this supper if you are not a believer, but rather accept and believe in Jesus today, that he is the way, the truth, The life. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I I pray, Lord, that you would take these elements, which are bread and juice, and Father, that you would, they will always remain bread and juice, but Father, that you would bless them and that you would cause us to, to know you deeper, that you would pour forth grace upon grace upon our souls, that we might trust you more and more. Father, as we come to the table, I pray, Lord, that we would know that we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And that, Father, only in Christ are we reconciled to you. Only in Christ are we justified and declared righteous before you. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would trust and believe and that you would bolster our faith in such a way that we love more, that we share the gospel more. Father, it is true that what we cherish, we commend. What we love, we will tell others about. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we love deeply of Jesus We would love what he has done, who he is, and that we could not help but tell the lost people around us about the glory of Christ. Father, would you sustain us and build us up? We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.